Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Tobin. Kathy. Yesterday we talked with Jill Soloway, the creator of the show Transparent. Mm -hmm. By the way, if you haven't heard that episode, you should go back and listen. It's a complicated conversation. We talked about allegations of abuse by Jeffrey Tambor behind the scenes at Transparent. He's since been fired from the show. But we also talked about the journey Jill has been on in discovering their gender identity and how their personal life has shaped the stories they tell on screen. One thing that's really great about later seasons of Transparent is how it starts to feature more trans actors playing trans characters, and that those characters have vivid and fascinating backstories. One standout is Davina, played by Alexandra Billings. Davina is like a mentor to Jeffrey Tambor's character Mara. She's funny and patient, but also tough, probably because she's seen it all. Wouldn't it be great to just live in a house like this? Not to have to worry about how to pay the rent or get you kicked out just because you left an empty bottle of milk in the refrigerator? Or for not fucking somebody? Or for not fucking in the right way. Girl, Girl, look, we all had to do things to survive. As long as I can remember. Alexandra Billings has had a long career in theater and TV. In fact, back in 2005, she was one of the first openly trans actors to play a trans character on TV. The role was in a prequel to Romy and Michelle that aired on ABC Family. And this fall, she made her Broadway debut in a comedy called The Nap, which got amazing reviews. It's about a champion snooker player. It's kind of like British pool. The play is goofy and fun, and Alexandra played a character named, wait for it, Waxy Bush. What a name. I know. (laughs) So I got a chance to talk to her a couple months ago, just after the show opened on Broadway. I want to know how it feels to be making your Broadway debut playing a one-armed gangster named Waxy Bush. (laughs) Well, how does it sound? (laughs) That's exactly how it is. Yeah. It's the greatest thing ever. I don't know how grateful I could possibly be. I mean, and the role is so silly. It's so ridiculous. So I literally get paid to go to the theater and act stupid for two hours. Yeah. It's amazing. And then they give me money. I can't believe it. (laughs) There are wacky characters, but there's also at the center of it, there's a really beautiful sort of sweet love story, strangely. Mm -hmm. And a snooker game. It's very difficult to explain. And... And around this love story revolves these sort of wacky characters. So Mm -hmm. there is a lot of sort of grounded, just comedy in it. Yeah. Well, I did want to ask you, like, the roles that I, that maybe people are most familiar with you from, like, things like Transparent, have, like, a more serious edge to them. Is it fun to explore this comedic side to get to play a character who is just funny? Well, I've weirdly, I've spent almost 40 years in theater. So I've been doing this kind of comedy for a very, very, very long time. You know, it's strange because this particular comedy is a very strange animal. It's its own being. So I actually have not done this kind of comedy, but I've been doing whacked out comedies. In fact, Jill Soloway, who's the director and the creator of Transparent, along with her sister Faith, and I did Chicago theater together back in 1920. And we, she was doing, she and Faith were working with the Annoyance Theater Company, Uh which is still there in Chicago. And they were doing a play called Co-Ed Prison Sluts. 
And uh-huh. I was three blocks away. We were all 12 years old. And I was three blocks away working for a theater company called Torso. Okay. And we were doing a play called Cannibal Cheerleaders on Crack. <laughs> they sound like real competing titles. And they were. Well, they were late night you know, things that mm-hmm. were filthy and disgusting and sold out nightly and ran for a year. That Campbell Cheerleaders on crack, I mean, bought me a house. I can't even tell you. I was in that show for 100 years. And then I went into Shannon Doherty shoots a porno, but that's a whole other book. So mm-hmm. I was doing Cannibal Cheerleaders and Jill was doing Coed Prison Sluts. And one day, Susan Messing, who's an, an actress, great actress and a teacher, she was in Coed Prison Sluts and she left the show. And so Jill called me and said, listen, Susan is leaving prison sluts, and we would love for you to step in. And I said, can't. I can't. Sorry. Doing camel cheerleaders. She said, I know that. However, co-ed prison sluts starts at 8, and cannibal cheerleaders doesn't start until 11. And you're only in the first act, and then you die. So you could do the first act, catch a cab, go to the other side of town, and do your gig. Oh, my God. You did a Cynthia Nixon. I did that for, <laughs> yeah. And that's how I met Jill and Faith. Oh, my gosh. And that's how Transparent sort of happened. I see. Because they knew me from... You were in the talent pool. I was in the... Some pool. Cesspool. I was in the (laughs) cesspool. I did want to ask you a question. Um, So with Transparent, which a lot of folks know you from, there was a lot of amazing opportunities that have been provided through the show for trans actors and trans writers on the show. And to be totally honest... I felt horrible for all that talent when the allegations of abuse by Jeffrey Tambor came out and he exited the show, especially because it involved two trans women. And so I wonder for you, as someone on the show where there's been this incredible amount of opportunity and groundbreaking work, and then for all of this to happen, I imagine there was a lot of complicated feelings around that. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Um <laughs> <laughs> It really was not complicated. Mm. It was very clear to me. Um, The last season with Transparent was going to be my last season for this very, because of this, because Mm. of Jeffrey's behavior and his attitude. I had every intention of walking in there and saying, I'm not coming back. I'll do this, but then this is going to be the last. Because they were talking about season 10, season 11, you know. And I just couldn't do it anymore because he was he, he was increasingly difficult to be around. Mm. So when this happened and when Van Barnes, who's a friend of mine, came out, uh, Jeffrey's personal assistant, and then when Trace Lizette, who's also a very dear friend of mine, came out, who plays Shay on the show, it was very easy for me to say, yes, they're absolutely right. Because mm-hmm. people were going, well, it's opinion. And I said, no, very clearly. No, it's not opinion. They're absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. I believe them. Even if I didn't see absolutely everything, I can tell you without equivocation, they are not lying. Jeffrey Tambor is lying. And I said that very clearly. And I don't have a problem saying that for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. It seems like you're saying it was somewhat of an open secret on set that this was the situation. It was, and it was. This is the thing that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. How complicit I was, and I only speak for myself, in allowing him to behave this way towards other humans on the set. Not just trans humans, but specifically trans humans, only because I myself am transgender. And like you said, we employed trans people, more than at that time, any other show. 
Mm. And they were traumatized. All of us were because of him. Mm. And I did nothing. And so I take responsibility for that, and that's something I have to live with, which is why when this thing happened, I'll be damned if I'm going to be silent. It's not going to happen. And I'll tell you something else. I'm going to keep talking about this for the rest of his life, no matter what he does, where he goes, or how often he pretends this doesn't happen until he admits it. Mm. For the rest of his life. Just so he knows and we're clear. I think that's very clear. Good. <laughs> um, do you have a sense now if we're going to get more of you then in the next season? You know, it's so up in the air right now. And uh, the stuff that I do know, I can't really talk about. Sure. But I can tell you this. The ideas that are being batted around are so ingenious. <laughs> They're unlike anything you've ever seen on television. Mm. But this is Jill Soloway. This is part of their brilliance. I mean, they just, Jill is a master imaginator. That's my new word, imaginator. <laughs> Write it down, kids. I mean, they have, the way they dream is just unparalleled. Yeah. And so that's really, what, that's really the only thing I can tell you. We reached out to Jeffrey Tambor's agent and publicist about the allegations of harassment during the production of Transparent. They didn't get back to us. But in interviews with The Hollywood Reporter and The New York Times, Jeffrey Tambor has said he was a mean and difficult colleague while on the show. He denies the allegations of more serious misconduct. After the break, Alexandra Billings tells me about her evolving relationship with her parents and why, even though they aren't alive anymore, she's pretty sure her father got to see her on Broadway. Nancy will be back in a minute. Kathy, I want to tell you about one of my actual favorite podcasts, Las Culturistas. You talk about that show all the time. Yeah, it's like hanging out with your smartest, funnest, most pop culture savvy friends. It's hosted by Bowen Yang, you might know him from SNL or Nora from Queens, and Matt Rogers of Game Show and our cartoon president. Love them. Each week, they interview an amazing guest about the pop culture that shaped their life, and they do this hilarious thing where you can rant about a piece of culture that frustrates you. Mine would be speaking only roles in musicals. <laughs> okay. Episodes are released every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to Lost Culturistas on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I read somewhere that you said that musical theater runs in your veins. Mm. Um, and I wonder, what was, was there a performance that you saw that made you fall in love with musical theater? Well, my father was a music teacher at Harbor College in Los Angeles, and he was also the musical director at the L.A. Civic Light Opera House. So I've been around musical theater since I was five. So I, I, there was never like one show that I saw that I went, oh, my God, I no longer want to be an ice skater. Like I just – I was raised by – queers and musical theater. Like, that was my whole thing. Because people, it's so interesting when people talk about gay people, you know, they always talk, gay people, they frighten me. I'm the opposite. It's straight people that frighten me. Because yeah. <laughs> I never, I was never around a lot of them. I was just around a lot of LGBT folk. Did your dad encourage you to go into the performing arts? He, yes-ish. I mean, you know, he he was like, 
This is what I do, so I assumed this is what you would do. But please don't do it, for the love of Pete. Like, be a doctor, be an accountant, wash windows, mm-hmm. do anything. Because he knows how hard the life is. Yeah. I mean, I'm a teacher now, and I tell my students that. Don't do this. Don't do it. <laughs> Stop. It's funny. I So I went to music school. That was like my training. And I had so many teachers also say, like, if you can imagine yourself doing anything else, do that thing. It's and true. I, I remember at the time being like, that's so mean and unnecessary. And now, having gotten out of music school, it makes I was perfect like, sense. That's exactly right. That's actually really smart if you think of, if there's anything else you think you want to do, because this has to be the only thing. Mm-hmm. It has to engulf you in it. It yeah. takes you in its arms and it doesn't let go. If that's not true, do the other thing. Yeah. When did you realize that it engulfed you? I've just always known it. I've never done I have no other skills. How tragic is that? It's true. I don't know how to do anything except play the drums, which I'm going to do yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to uh, that. I play the drums really well. and um, But I don't know how to do anything else because I never – you know, even when I was going to go to college, I was like, why am I going – I need to go act. <laughs> and that's what I did. Yeah. And, you know, and I did co-ed prison slots. <laughs> <laughs> and put your leaders on crack, and my career soared. <laughs> um, I want to go back to your dad, who you mentioned, who's a music teacher. Yeah. Um, were you close with your parents growing up? What was that relationship like? I was, but remember, I was transgender at a time when that word, first of all, didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't find each other, the trans community. We were either drag queens or we were complete outcasts. And by outcasts, I mean by the... The gays and the lesbians, too, which mm. is still somewhat true, to be perfectly honest. Um, but it was really true back in the 1970s and 80s. So when I first came out as a uh, what we called at that time a preoperative transsexual, it's so clinical, isn't it? Mm-hmm. My God. Um, it's very descriptive. We don't need all that information, do we? No. <laughs> uh, but when that happened, then my parents both needed to leave, and they said, we can't. Because they didn't know any better. No, none of us knew. Mm-hmm. And I actually strangely understood that. I was like, okay, I get it. Because they would say, well, you can visit us, but you can't dress like that. And it was really my decision. I said, well, then I can't come mm-hmm. here because I'm not going to do that anymore. They're just clothes. So I don't know why it bothers you so much, but it does. So you let me know when it doesn't. And yeah. that was about five or six years later. I see. In them sort of not having... Well, not anyone having the language, but especially not your parents having the language to understand what you were going through. Did you, being a performer, actually give them some of that language to understand you because your dad sort of understood the arts? I don't think that that helped (laughs) at all. You know, they were children of the 50s. These are are men and women whose gender specificity was drilled into their heads. Men behave this way, women behave that way. And that's it. That's all they know. That's why all these old people in the that are running the country are losing their minds, right? Because they're all grandfathers and grandmothers that were raised in the 50s. They don't understand us. It doesn't. We're not on their radar. It doesn't make any sense to them. People keep t- saying how terrible they are. And I don't think they're terrible people. I think they're just byproducts of their generation. Mm. Do you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying – I'm not making excuses for them, but I am saying 
it's a waste of time for us to be so angry at somebody who turned out exactly the way they were supposed to. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, you're not supposed to be that. And they're like, well, yeah, I am. And then you go, well, maybe. Why are we angry? Let's put our energies into something just that's going to make some difference. Right. Talk to the younger generation like you. Mm-hmm. You're the people we should be talking to. Not, you know, Donald Trump and all of his grand followers. <laughs> doesn't make any, you know, all the old people. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. They're not really going to be votable in the next 10 years anyway. Yeah. Were you able to have better conversations with your parents as your relationship evolved? Well, remember, again, we didn't have vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So we didn't – there were no conversations. There was no P flag. There was no – there was nothing. So we – all of us thought we were the only ones going through this as well until I found my tribe. My trans brothers and sisters were the ones that helped me. Mm. That said, you don't have to do any of this and they will come around. Yeah. Give them time. And they did. Wow. And they did. I just stopped. I just said – We can't do this. I'm not going to argue who I am with you. I'm not going to debate it. It's not debatable. It's not a phase. If it was a phase, uh, I'll call you when it's over. But that didn't happen for years and years. Yeah. Did they – well, do you mind if I ask, are they still around? They're not. My mother – this is a – my whole life is a strange story, but this is a strange story. So my parents got divorced when I was, I don't know, six or seven years old. They both married other people. My father married two other people. My mother married one. All of them either passed away or they divorced. My father lived in L.A. My mother lived in Chicago. Uh, my mother retired, moved to L.A. They remet after 30-plus years, fell back in love, and decided to get remarried. No way. <laughs> so they called me. Wait, it's not the end of the story. So they called me, and they said, listen. And I married my best friend who is cisgender female. And so my mother called me and she said, listen, I'm going to remarry your father. How do you feel about that? And I said, who am I to tell anybody about who you love? Please have at it. So they went on a pre-honeymoon before they had the ceremony. And they went to Santa Fe, I think. Mm -hmm. And my mother, both of them were very heavy drinkers. My mother came into the living room one afternoon while they were there. They were there for about a week. And she said... I feel sort of strange. And she was sort of slurring. My dad thought, oh, she's been drinking. And she had a cold and he, she took a couple of Sudafed or something. So he thought, okay, she drank and then she took those things. Go lay down. She laid down, had a massive stroke and died. I'll tell you why I'm telling you this terrible story. A year to the week of my mother's death, my father had a massive heart attack and died. So neither of them got sick for a long time. In fact, they didn't even get very old. They were 62 and 65, respectively, when they passed away. Mm -hmm. Here's why I tell you that story. It's a great lesson in living your life right now. If you're waiting for something, if you're waiting for something to heal, or you're waiting to get over something or get past something, or you're waiting for someone else to do something that you expect them to do, you are wasting time. Mm. And that relationship, they finally found each other after all these years. They were finally together. They were finally happy. They had all of this money. And then they were snatched off the planet. They weren't sick. They weren't. 
So you got to think about this. Literally picked up by the hand of the universe and snatched off the planet right before the third act of their life was to begin. So that is always a mirror, a reflection for me. Whatever you want to do, do it. Yeah. Wow, what a story. Isn't that something? That's crazy. That's huge, isn't it? (laughs) Shall we play the drums now? (laughs) Well, I guess, I mean, just because I'm curious, like, did they get to see you perform? They did. uh, They did. Uh, My father, I did a production of Gypsy. Speaking of Gypsy, I played Rose in Gypsy years and years and years ago. I was way too young, but I played it anyway uh, because somebody asked me to. And my father got to see me in that. And that was great because he had never sort of seen me star in a production of anything. Mm. And my mother lived to see me in my first show at the Steppenwolf Theater, which is an award-winning theater in Chicago. They didn't get to see the TV success. Uh, They didn't get to see me on Broadway. They haven't seen that. But I feel like, you know, I know we hear this a lot that they're always with us. But the strangest thing happened on opening night. I was standing taking my bow, and I was looking out at the audience. And I'm telling you, without equivocation, I saw my father in the third row standing up and applauding. So I know they were with me. Has that ever happened for you before? No, never. Never. Not that clearly. Mm. Never. And and in that moment, how did you process seeing your father? I, I felt like, well, of course. <laughs> That's exactly I was like, well, sure. That makes perfect sense. It, I wasn't freaked out. I wasn't frightened. I just went, yes, that makes perfect sense. Of course he's there. And of course he's in the third row. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's lovely. Mm. Well, thank you so much for making time to talk to me. Thank you, my friend. What a beautiful afternoon. This was a joy. Let's go have pizza. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> I'll give up my no bread thing. Yeah, forget that. (laughs) that. Forget it. That was actor and activist Alexandra Billings. She most recently appeared on Broadway in The Nap. All right, it is credits time. Our producers, Matt Collette and Matt Frassica. Production fellow, Temi Fagbenle. Sound designer, Jeremy Bloom. Editor, Jenny Lawton. Executive producer, Paula Schumann. I'm Kathy Chu. I'm Tobin Lowe. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. Wait, do you really play the drums? I don't. Okay. <laughs> But do you want me to anyway? I would just, at a certain point, I was like, is it a bit? Is it not a bit? You don't know. We don't know. You'll never know until we try.